0: The reason why we're here is we're planning a church. We're in what we call the core team phase of our church, which means we gather on Sunday mornings and we praise Jesus for his goodness and uh, we preach uh, through our core values. We have four of them. Our core values are down, up, in, and out. And to explain that, I want to kind of give you why we use those. And so down is the gospel. Uh, Jesus, uh, by his beautiful grace, came down for broken sinners like you and me. Uh, Up is formation. Uh, This is our response to the fact that Jesus came down for us, and and, and, and he's transforming our hearts to be more like him. In is community. Uh, the church isn't just a place to affiliate with. It's actually a family to belong to. Uh, Jesus not only saved us from our sin, uh, but he also saved us into a family. Uh, out is our mission. Uh, as God sent Jesus to come down for us, he sends us to share his good news with the world. If you've been here for the, from the beginning or at least some periods of time, you've probably heard this time and time and time again— But I think that's good news. I think that is a good thing because those four core values are the thing that shapes our hearts, that shapes how we function as a church family. It it shapes how we think and and how we respond to the gospel. And so we want to make sure that we continue as a family to be mindful of our core values. And so uh, where we've gone so far is we've preached through our core values in the gospels. Uh, Then we also went through the book of Galatians. And now we've been going through the Old Testament, seeing our core values as as how, how God played it out in the Old Testament. And so today is our fourth and final one in the Old Testament. And so um, that's where we're at right now. Also, uh, so we gather on Sunday, but then we scatter throughout the week. When we scatter, we scatter in our city groups. These are uh, mid-sized communities of 15 to 40 people. This is where our family and our community actually bond together. Uh, What we do is we live out those core values together in our communities and in our homes. We have fun together. We eat together. It's, it's one of my favorite times because we do get to eat together. Um, but it's also uh, a, a great time for us to study God's Word and just get to know each other a, a little better. And so that's, that's what we've been up to. That's what we've been doing as a church family. Uh, last week, I got the opportunity to share with you about David and how he invited Mephibosheth to dine at his table and be a part of the king's family. Just like Jesus invites us to be a part of his family him being our king, and uh, we get to eat at his table for eternity. In fact, we talked about how we actually don't get to earn that place at the table. It's been given to us by his grace and by his love and affection for us. And so as we open up our Bibles today to the book of Jonah, what we're going to talk about is the business of that family, the the business of God's family. And so as you look in the table of contents, I want to set that up for you. And yes, I said table of contents because it took me looking in the table of contents to find where Jonah is. So anyway, so as you look for Jonah in your Bibles, um, what I want to show you is that the the family business that God has made for us is the mission of God. Uh, Early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God finds a guy named Abraham. And when he first speaks to him, the thing that he tells Abraham is, I will make you a great nation so that you might be a blessing, and so what? I, the reason why I share that with you is because the idea of making disciples of all nations that we find in in the Gospel of Matthew is actually not just in a New Testament idea; it's been God's framework for His people from the beginning. And so, as we look at the family business, what I want to do is I want to show you how that plays out with our brother Jonah. Uh, what this means is that God's heart. Has always been for all people, and so he wants to seek and save that which is lost from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And his chosen tool for that mission is us, the church. So as we look at Jonah, uh, Jonah is God's chosen person. He's one of—he's an Israelite. He's a prophet by God's grace and His sovereignty. He's sending them him out to a people. Now, those people—what you may not know about those people is that they're not nice. And that's probably putting it in lightly. These are the Ninevites. Uh, they were a cruel, nasty bunch of people. Uh, they were known for their cruelty and brutality to their enemies. And so when they would invade and overcome their enemy, they would actually torture them. And if they were to kill their enemy, what they would do is actually take their remains and their skulls and make art sculptures out of them. And so these probably aren't guys you want to hang out with on the weekend, right? Like, you're probably not going to invite them to a Bible study in your home because they're just vile. They're not peaceful people. They're not merciful people. In fact, they're a people of death. And so here's why this matters. There are people and places around us that we would probably look at and say, that's Nineveh. There are people in places around us where we have the tendency to say, I'm just going to stay away from those people or those places because it's a lot easier to love people that agree with us. But this story shows us how God actually loves all people, and that's what we're called to. This story shows us that God is calling us to reach out to people who don't vote like us, look like us, walk like us, talk like us, or think like us. And I think the biggest problem as a church, though, that we have to face is the reality that we're very comfortable. We're comfortable with the assigned seats that we have every single Sunday. I bet most of you already know where you're sitting right before you get here. We're comfortable with that. We're comfortable with having the same exact friendships and relationships time in and time in and time again. And yet, God, I will tell you, wants to grow this church and grow other churches. He wants more people in the family of God. He wants this church to be a diverse church by race, by finances, by background, and struggle. I think we can relate to Jonah, though, because there's probably people that we tend to stay away from as he's trying to do in our story. But I want to ask you this morning, would you soften your heart to the word of God and be excited about the family business that we've been called into? So let's look at Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amade, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish and away from the presence of the Lord. So in this section God calls Jonah and says, "Hey, I want you to go to lost people." And in response to God's call, Jonah does not stand before God and says, "Here I am, Lord, send me." In fact, he flees from the presence of the Lord. So God said, "Go," and Jonah said, "Uh-uh, I ain't going." And so when I'm looking at this, it's kind of crazy to me. It's it's actually really crazy because Why would you flee from the presence of the Lord? Like the God who loves you, the God who saves you, why would he go in the opposite direction of where God would call him? Why would you go away from God? Now, in chapter 1, it actually doesn't explain why Jonah ran from God, but if if we looked in chapter 4, just verse 2, here's what it says about Jonah. He says, "'And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country?' That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and bounding in steadfast love, and relenting in disaster. You see, Jonah didn't have a problem with Nineveh necessarily. Jonah had a problem with God. That's why he was fleeing. He knew that God would be merciful and gracious and loving to a people that he didn't think deserved God's gracious love. Jonah had a problem with God. God is the one who wants Jonah to go and warn by his mercy a group of people that Jonah did not think deserved this and so this was his response his response wasn't to run headlong into God's call it was actually to go in the complete opposite direction what it doesn't say here is Tarshish was about as far east from the place that he wanted him to go that you can go or west yeah west Uh, west than where he wanted him to go it was it was as far as he could go and so he removed himself from the presence of God but Here's the weird thing about that. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know for a fact that you can't get away from God, right? Like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. You don't have to be a prophet to know that you can't get away from God because God is omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere. So getting away from someone who's everywhere is kind of difficult, right? And then he's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Well, if he knows everything, how are you going to get away? And then he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, There's no place you or I can go to get away from God. And yet, we still run from God. We still hide ourselves. We still choose not to go. Instead, we tell God no on many occasions. I think we most often say no when it comes to the family business, when it comes to our call to mission. And so the calling that Jonah has is the same call that we have that we find in Matthew chapter 28. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This has always been God's call for his people. From the beginning until now, this has been the gospel, this has been the message that God has called us to, the mission that God has called us to. So this very specific call for Christians actually wasn't a suggestion. He said, go therefore and make disciples. So it wasn't like, if you really want to, or if this is something you feel like doing, go do it. No, it's a command by God in Scripture for us to go and make more disciples. And so to not do so, is sin. Now, when I say that, you're probably like, hold up now. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't think anything wrongly about a person. So how could it be sin if I'm not doing this? And I think that's probably our typical response with sin like this, is that we think that our sin of commission, doing something that you shouldn't do, is the only form of sin that we have. When in reality... To not do something that you know you should do is the sin of omission. This is a sin that's a little quieter. It's a little bit more palatable because no one can see what you're not doing, right? And so this sin of omission comes from us knowing what we are commanded to do by God, but choosing not to do it. And I think that's a big part of our call. See, like, why do we shy away from the opportunities that God gives us to share the greatest news that we've ever heard? We've ever heard, it's wrecked our life forever. And so I have to ask the question, why in this crucial place do we run away? And so let's look at Jonah again in chapter 4, verse 1. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. Now when it says that he's angry, I think by and large what it's saying is that he had a great pride in his heart. He had a pride that I would say pride is probably the root of our, all of our sin because things weren't going the way he wanted them to go, and so therefore he was angry. Isn't that us? Isn't that the issue that a lot of times we have? I would say yes. That, that's the reason why I don't want to share with other people is, is because we have pride. What we're saying, what our pride says is that my time is more valuable I don't have time for those kinds of people. Or saying that my time is more important than that other person's life. Our pride is saying I don't need to share with different people because it's far easier to share with those who look like me, walk like me, talk like me, because it's more beneficial to me. I would say that the truth is we don't share because we really don't care. In our sin, We are more about my people, my nation, my political party, my rights than we are about God's call, God's mission, and God's word. Amen? I believe we're missing a big part of the reason why we're here. In Philippians 4, sorry, Philippians 1.21, Paul says this. He says, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So what he's not saying here is that our sole purpose in existence is to build up enough wealth so I can retire and sit on my butt until my life expires. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that my life's mission, my purpose, is to be the nice guy that doesn't offend anybody. It's certainly not to protect my religious freedoms, and it's certainly not to protect my comforts and my privileges as hard as I can. When Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, this is what he's telling us. Our sole purpose in existence, in life, is to glorify God by living as Christ. And that happens by seeing what Christ did for us and responding faithfully to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, Jesus wasn't comfortable. He was more of an outcast than an insider at any given time. Jesus didn't go in the opposite direction of the cross. He actually read headlong into the cross, toward the cross. This is the very person and work of Jesus Christ, is that It's not a comfort thing. It's actually a going thing that he was going into. Now this, as a Christian, it should be personal to you. It's personal to me. Here's why it's personal to me. So about two years ago, there was a guy that I noticed walking past my house. I knew him because uh, I knew him from growing up. And so as he was walked by, I'd, I'd say hi to him or I'd make small talk with him. And I just felt inside of me, God was saying, you need to share Jesus with this dude. And as he would walk by, I'd say, nah, not this time. And he'd walk by again. And I'd say, nah, not this time. Nah, not this time. I, I knew that in me I was supposed to, but I just kept saying no. And then January 2014, I opened up my email. Lincoln Journal Star says a report man stabbed in the park. And that man was the guy who was walking past my house. And he was dead. And I didn't share with him. Now, I don't know where he was with Jesus, and I don't think it was my job to save him by any means, but I did have a responsibility to share the good news with him that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, I'm not saying that to guilt you into sharing this precious news that we have. I'm saying that because I'm guilty of the same thing, of shirking the responsibility of my call. I, like Jonah, often run the opposite direction toward comfort, security, and selfishness. But here's the good news. Praise God that he gives us grace in the midst of that. That he gives us grace to continue to pursue us even though we disobey, and he continues to still call us into something greater even though we run away from him. In our disobedience, God still sends us. As we continue to work through chapter 1 of Jonah, here's what we see. I'm going to give you a summary real quick. Jonah gets on a boat. He gets on a ship with a group of guys, and they start sailing, and it says God sends a storm. When he sends that storm, those guys start getting fearful, and they start shaking, and they don't know what's going on because they think they're about to die, and so then they they start praying to gods that they really don't know, and those gods don't respond to them because they're false gods, and then they realize that Jonah's the issue because Jonah's still in the bottom of the boat hanging out. And so they go to Jonah, and they're like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? And he said, here's how you fix your issue. Throw me off the boat. And so the reason why he said throw me off the boat, though, is because he knew what was going on. He knew that God was pursuing him. He knew that God was coming after him. And so he figured, throw me off the boat so that you can be saved. And so when, he, when they threw him off the boat, sure enough, the storm stopped. As Jonah is sinking into the water, seed getting in his mouth, water's going into his lungs, and he's drowning, and his life is being snuffed out of him. Here's what happens. Jonah calls to God. Jonah calls to God, and God hears him and meets him right there in the depths of his pride and his sin, where his sin had carried him. God met him there, and here's what he did. He sent a fish to swallow Jonah up and keep him there alive for three days. Let's look at what Jonah says when God does that. It's chapter 2, verse 7 is where we're going to pick it up at. Here's what Jonah says. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, Jonah repented of his sin. Though Jonah disobeyed God and sinned against God, God did not come after him to punish him. He came after him for his heart. And in fact, God knew that Jonah eventually in the depths of his soul was going to respond. And so he let him go into his pride, into his sin, into the depths of his desperate place, so that he can turn his heart toward him. God's heart for us is not simply to send us out on an errand to fulfill what our duty is to him. But God doesn't, doesn't want us to just do things for him, but what he really, really desires is us. That's what he wants Like with Jonah, God will do whatever it takes to get your heart and my heart. He'll allow you to go through the storms. He'll allow you to even disobey him and walk away from him and let you bear the weight of the consequences of your sin, all the while knowing that if he allows you to do that, he's going to gain your focus. So by his grace, God did not tell Jonah, hey, dude, since you're going to walk away, I'm going to walk the other way. I'm going to leave you alone. City Light, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like, at some point, I'm going to do the worst thing possible, so therefore God's going to turn his back on me? Or do you feel like God is looking at you, just waiting for you to screw up again, and he's going to pounce on you for your sin, right? Or, or, do you, or do you ever think that just maybe God doesn't care about your current problem or circumstances? He does. God cares deeply about your hurts, your issues, your problems, your circumstances. He cares deeply about the sin in your life. He cares deeply about how things are going right here, right now in your life. But he loves you way too much to care about the winds and the waves in your life more than the heart he's trying to form in you. Far more than God wanting you to do the right thing, he wants your heart focused on the right person. Jesus. When Jonah was in his greatest place of need, he went to God. Is that your response? Is that our response, generally speaking, when we're in our greatest place of need? Listen here. If you're in that place, if you're in the the depths right now, God is with you. He's right there with you. He's actually allowing you so that you might go to your knees and respond without any other choice but to say, God, help me. Jesus will allow you to go to the depths of your sin, but he won't let you go there alone. And he won't let you stay there. Let's check back in with Jonah and see what else happens. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it with the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was not an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, And put on sackcloth from the greatest of them into the least of them. And now I want to jump to verse ten here, real quick, and because here's God's response to him. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So my second point is God not only sends, but he also saves. God met Jonah when he was still walking away from him and obeying him, God met him when he was sinning, others potentially into death. And yet God was so gracious to still continue to try to use him. And so by God's grace, he expounds on that. And so he calls Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. And by God's grace, he extends his grace to Jonah, but he also extends his grace to those crazy people in Nineveh. This is a beautiful picture of God's grace. You have both a disobedient religious guy and then an irreligious crazy people. And God extends the same loving kindness of his grace to both sets of people. I think I need to explain something, though, here, because that grace was given to them because of repentance, Now, what repentance is, is a a word that's used throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. But specifically, Jesus uses it on multiple occasions in the Gospels when it comes to how we might obtain grace. So the word, or to repent, simply means to turn from one direction and head in another. And so when, when Jesus explains this, his desire is for us to Turn away from our sinful trajectory of our life. This is our our natural posture in life and head toward him and his grace. So as a Christian, this is actually the mark of our life. This is a consistency, a consistent call to repentance. It's a call to turn from our natural posture, which is naturally rebellious against God and change course toward Jesus. And even in that, we, we tend to stray away a little bit But repentance is noticing that stray and refocusing on Jesus. Last week, I said Jesus is the goal, right? Last week, I said Jesus is the goal, and he truly is. To love him, to live like him, to love like him is the goal. God called Jonah to repent of his religiosity and disobedience towards God's commands. But he also called Nineveh to repent of their wickedness. In the rebellious life, and God graciously forgave and extended his loving grace to both. City Light, isn't that our story though? That's our story right there on display for us. Some of us are the rule followers who don't see ourselves as bad as other people, because we don't disobey God in the big things, and so we must not be that bad. We think that we have a, a leg up on God's favor and we so we if we follow enough rules and don't break enough of them, he'll probably just leave us alone and let us do our own thing. all the while we see that this is actually a dangerous way to walk because all of a sudden jesus isn't the one that saves me but i am all of a sudden i can say jesus i don't need you because i can do it myself it's a pride and it's a sin to think that we can earn our salvation by our own works or we're the other kind we're the rebellious kind our hearts say that there is nothing good in me so therefore why would god accept me There's the rebellious type that says, my sin is too big for God to handle. We believe the lie that why would he let such a broken and awful person to be near him? And this this particular thought process leaves us in a spiral of sin. Because if I can't get in anyway, why should I try? But this, too, is a false understanding of what Jesus has done for us, trying to make yourself right with God, saying that the only way to God or the only way that he can accept me is by making myself better. And I tell you what, this is where it leaves you. It leaves us lost, lonely, broken, and defeated. I know that we all fall in both of these camps one way or another. Like even by the grace of God, we still sometimes fall into one of these camps. And so even for me, for instance, before I came to know Jesus, I would probably put myself in the rebellious camp. I would put myself in the camp of saying, I know what I've done, so therefore I'm not good enough. And I remember thinking and and praying and saying, God, at some point in my life, I will be better and so therefore I can come to you. Or at some point, God, I'm going to be a good person, so therefore I can enter into your presence. And the paradox of all of that is that in my Christian life, now that I've been walking with Jesus, I flip flopped that to the point where I think I deserve his grace and I deserve his presence more than other people. At times, I think God's grace is reserved for those who earn it. Here's my confession. Listen up. I'm just now learning really what grace is. I think I understood mercy okay, and I think I understand forgiveness okay, because mercy is simply put, you deserve punishment, but I don't give it to you. Forgiveness is I, you wronged me, but yet I treat it as though it never actually happened. Both are glorious and wonderful, God-honoring things that God gives to us, but I don't think I grasp the grace part of that. And so let's let God tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Jonah 4, verse 1 again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Listen to this. That is why I made haste to flee in Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. And if we skip on down to verse 11, here's what God says to him. He says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. See, Jonah knew that God would be so gracious and steadfast in his love toward Nineveh, just like he was to Jonah. Jonah. And so grace is so much more than forgiveness and mercy. It is inviting Jonah to still be a part of that mission that God has called him to, even though he ran away. Now, I know we're reading an Old Testament book, right? So this is written before Jesus is born, before Jesus is actually mentioned by name. But City Light, this is a a foreshadowing of Jesus right here in this text. Jonah's story is a foreshadowing of Jesus. See, like I want to tell you something. Jesus is the better Jonah. Jesus is the better Jonah. Jonah came with a warning message. Jesus came with a message that gives life. Jonah came out of duty. Jesus did it out of love. Jonah obeyed to earn his own benefit, but Jesus obeyed for our own best interest. Jonah was spit out by a fish in his grave after three days, but Jesus raised himself from the grave. Jonah was the mouthpiece to God's saving work, but Jesus was the means of that work. Do you see this beautiful picture? Do you see Jesus in this Old Testament, old message? Jesus has graciously chose to use us, his family, the church, to bring his message of life to all people. Jonah didn't love people that didn't look like him, think like him, vote like him, act like him. But Jesus, being the greater Jonah, loved all people. That's why his message in Matthew 28 is to us. It says, "Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." City Light, did you know that that's why we planted this church? That's why we're planting a church in the first place is to fulfill that command that Jesus gave to us to make disciples of all nations. Our mission, our mission statement is to glorify God by multiplying Jesus-centered disciples in churches. Making disciples and planting churches is not a new cool trend. It's been around for 2,000 years ago, and it's been God's means to save people on a continual basis. Statistically speaking, a church plan is six to eight times more likely to meet a lost person than an established church of 10 years or more. That's why we plant a church. That's why we're planting a church. Our desire, of course, is to be a family of God. It's to be united in a community, no doubt about it, and to be connected and authentic. However, that's not our only call to hang out and party on Sunday morning, but we're called to be a family that is on mission. Do you know there's so many tribes, tongues, and nations just around this building right here? Right here in this building, right around this building, in this neighborhood, there are people from tribes, tongues, and nations that we don't know about. There are college students all over this city, and we're at the geographical center of it on purpose. I think that's why God's placed us here. He placed the City Light family here so that we might preach the gospel of that which is lost. We're here as a family on mission. I want us to resemble heaven here on earth, church. So here's some of the things that we are praying through and desiring of our family. The first one is our city groups. Um, I want our city groups, our prayers, that our city groups would live out all of our four values of down, up, in, and out, meaning the mission of God. Our city groups are a means to do that, to reach the people in your neighborhood, at your vocation, uh, your friends, your family, all of those people. But then we also have some opportunities already kind of built in right now. Uh, Right now, one of those is is that we partner with a ministry uh, uh, for refugee children here on Thursday nights from 6 to 8. From 6 to 8 o'clock at night on Thursdays, kids from all around the world come here to hear about Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? There are 30,000 college students for which we have told you time and time again, but these college students are not just from Nebraska. They're from around the country and around the world, and they're right here in our own backyard. Half our focus as a church is to reach the college student. And so with City Light you, we are putting the gospel in the hands of the next generation and the next and the next. We will continue to train you as the church and invite you into opportunities to reach Jesus' lost people in fact, uh, here in a moment, Austin's actually going to share about a training opportunity on the 19th that's coming up uh, as well. But finally, I, I want to tell you as well, um, our church will be a church that cares about global missions. We will both send and be sent by God to go to other places in the world and love those people who are far off from God. We will be a family who cares about the world. Amen? Amen. I want, to do, I want to close with this. So I told you earlier, I want to be a church that resembles heaven. And so I want to show you just a snapshot of what heaven looks like to John when he looks at God's church. It's in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. City Light, I believe Jesus wants us to be a church that represents heaven on earth. Let's go to him in prayer, asking him to shape our church, shape our family to be a heavenward church. Amen? Let's pray.